0: podcast may not be suitable for work or for at home with small children, listen with caution. Hi, I'm Crystal and I'm your host here at The Brain Grave. Welcome. Today will be our first episode and the segment will be Music Minute. In this segment, we're going to talk about a musician who met his unfortunate demise here in Columbus, Ohio, when he was murdered by a fan during a show in 2004. I'd like to preface that with Music Minute, I will almost always focus primarily on the musician, unless they were the one causing the crime. I would like to give the backstory of the victim leading up to their death, and then discuss the murderer, and perhaps things that could have been put in place to prevent the tragedy. While hindsight is certainly 2020, sometimes we find that safety protocols and procedures are put in place only after blood has been shed. It was a blistery winter day in Columbus, Ohio, as Daryl Lance Abbott, otherwise known as Dimebag Daryl, prepared to play with his band, Damage Plan, at the El Rosa Villa nightclub. Little did he know that this would be his final show, due to a fan ambushing him on the stage and shooting him at point-blank range. That was the end of his life, but certainly not the end of his legacy. In order to understand the demise and legacy of Dimebag Daryl, we need to go back and talk about his life prior to it being cut short by a man named Nathan Gale who suffered from mental health issues. Could this have been prevented? Are there safety precautions that could have been put in place? In many of these cases, we will most likely find that this is yet another tragic case of untreated mental illness where other people end up paying the price of the stigmas of mental illness with their lives. Daryl and his brother, Vincent Paul Abbott, best known as Vinnie Paul, were born and raised in Texas with their mother after their parents divorced. From what I've read, they had a pretty happy childhood and both parents were very supportive of their love of music. Due to their father, Jerry Abbott, being a country songwriter and producer, they were exposed to music at a young age. And although they did not follow their father into country music, thank goodness for that, it likely had a significant impact on their love of music. Daryl started learning guitar when he received a Les Paul on his 12th birthday and cited Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Kiss, and Judas, Judas Priest's large musical influences, as well as Southern rock band and fellow Texans, ZZ Top. He also would dress in Kiss-style makeup, specifically Ace Fraley, who he, who's considered the spaceman in the group, and his makeup looks kind of like stars on his eyes. His brother Vinny, who is older, play the drums, and they began to have jam sessions together. I think even learning Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, which is, I think, kind of a rite of passage if you play guitar um, to learn. They also sought inspiration from sibling musicians like Eddie and Alex Van Halen and would turn down offers to join other bands if their respective brother was not included as well. When the band was originally formed by Vinny's classmates, Terry Glaze, Donnie Hart, and Tommy Bradford, he agreed to join only on the condition that they would also include Daryl, which they eventually did. Together, the brothers formed the infamous band Pantera in 1981, and with their father, Jerry, producing under a pseudonym, the band's own record label was the same name as their first album, Metal Magic. But the Pantera of 1981 is not the Pantera we know and love today, as that music was almost more of a glam metal rock heavily inspired by, you guessed it, Kiss. It's also referred to as Sunset Strip Rock, which is kind of due to the number of rock bars and nightclubs that were on the Sunset Strip, and they were frequented by other glam rock bands, like Quiet Riot and Motley Crue. It was all about having a good time, and a good time they definitely had. So Pantera originally had feathered hair that would make even white Goodman jealous. They wore spandex and makeup, and for whatever reason, this really makes me laugh. If you're trying to get a good mental picture of this setup, imagine 1970s, 1980s L.A. Hollywood housing some of the greatest musicians of all time. Of course, this could be disputed, and I'm certainly biased, but nonetheless, some of the best were talking Zeppelin, Stones, The Who, where they're acting like complete fools with the rock and roll antics and hoopla, and then later on, Halen, Bowie, Iggy, Molly Crew, Blondie. The place was hopping. The whole strip, including Tower Records. They housed some of the up and coming rec- artists and a lot of the artists also had house gigs at a lot of the clubs, which included the Roxy, the Whiskey, Gazaris, the Rainbow Bar and Grill. So anyways, it was super glam, super fun, all music all the time. Why wouldn't Daryl and Vinny want to be influenced by this? So if you're curious, I highly recommend checking out thebraingrave.com to see some of the pics I posted with the episode. To see Pantera in their spandex hairsprayed eyeliner glory. Don't worry, I'll wait. And you're welcome. Fun fact Daryl also went by Diamond Daryl, not Dimebag, during his glam metal phase. Under the glam metal vibe, they released Metal Magic, Projects in the Jungle, I Am the Night, and Power Metal. While working on their fifth studio album, they signed under ATCO Records, which would later become East West. And eventually, Electra. A new decade brought a new album, *Cowboys from Hell*, and the birth of groove metal. This is also the record that catapulted Pantera into worldwide success, and it was coined, uh, and they were coined as the creators of groove metal. It's often described as heavy metal that's a little bit slower in tempo, but they still scream like thrash bands. White Zombie is also another example of groove metal. Vulgar Display of Power was released in 1992 to critical acclaim and, like its predecessor, went platinum, but also surpassed that, obtaining double platinum status. Besides, if you can name your album in reference to one of the scariest movies from the 70s where a little girl projectile vomits pea green soup in your face and then causes nightmares for millions of people, I think you can safely say you earn badass status anyway. Pantera spent the majority of the 1990s touring with well-known bands like Skid Row, Megadeth, Soundgarden, uh, which officially catapulted, catapulted them into mainstream audiences. and It also solidified them into metal audiences everywhere. Before they knew it, they were everywhere. On MTV, they were used on Headbangers Ball, video games, you name it. If you wanted metal, Pantera was there to help you bridge that gap. Side note, I can't imagine how it felt for Daryl and Vinny to be headlining stages with bands that they once referred to as influences. And now they were headlining alongside of them, creating a new genre of influencers for artists. I mean, this is the magic of music, and that's what it's all about. Far Beyond Driven was released in 1994, also reaching platinum status. The Great Southern Trend Kill was their first studio album where Anselmo recorded the lead's vocals separate. Uh, He recorded them at Trent Reznor's studios in New Orleans. Um, and then the rest of the band recorded in Texas. So it kind of showed that there was some trouble for the band. Um, this is also the first album where the vocals were much more aggressive. Um, Anselmo had done, um, he had layered and double tracked his, his vocals. So they really sounded, um, they were aggressive. They almost sounded like demonic, um, if I were to classify this album a little bit different than groove metal, I would say it's like more death metal. Um, it was a really like hard album, good album, but really like really hard album. Um, so a little bit of trouble in paradise because they're obviously not recording together. That's a lot of tension when you don't have the whole band together. Um, so the ninth and final studio album, reinventing the steel, was kind of a thank you to the fans and to their influences and was the only major album to never reach platinum status. By this time, the band was experiencing a lot of tension. It was between Daryl and Anselmo, with eventually leading the the band to disband in 2001. This led to Daryl and Vinny forming Damage Plan, while Anselmo worked on several projects, including Down, Superjoin, and then starting his own record label. So at this time, we're going to discuss... Nathan Miles Gale. He was born September 11, 1979 in Illinois and later moved with his mother, Mary Clark, to Ohio. Gale was reported to have behavioral issues by school administrators and required special education for an unspecified learning disability. In high school, Gale had behavioral and academic concerns but was put back into mainstream classes as a freshman without an IEP, 504, or any kind of special education for his learning disability. In 10th grade, his mom divorced for the second time, and he he began to have difficulties with truancy. It was at this time that he and his mother relocated to Marysville, which is about 30 minutes northwest of Columbus. But in a good turn of events, it was there that he excelled at a vocational school and completed training as an electrician. It was after graduation, though, that his friends say Gail had trouble distinguishing real life from Pantera's music. They had formed a band together, and Gale would sometimes submit lyrics as his own that would clearly be from Pantera, and he would become enraged, convinced that Pantera stole those from him. After Gale graduated from Marysville, he served a limited term in the United States Marine Corps from February 2002 until November 2003. During this time he was in the military, his mother, Mary Clark, bought him a Beretta 92FS, otherwise known as the M9 in the military. It is not clear the reason that Gail did not serve his entire term, but it is possible and likely he had a medical separation as he was receiving mental, mental health treatment with medications while in the military. And according to his mother, in an interview after his death, he suffered from schizophrenia. We're going to discuss this diagnosis in a moment because it is important here in understanding what Gail may have been suffering from. Leading up to the murders, Gail was trying to adjust to civilian life after discharge from the military and was employed at a quick oil change shop for a short time, but later left. His employer has mentioned in interviews that he was a great employee and he just ended up leaving because he was looking for better pay but some of the alarming behaviors that both Clark and some of Gail's friends recall was that he was rather paranoid, often complaining that Pantera had stolen lyrics from him and that they were trying to steal his identity. During this time, it was not clear if he was taking medication, seeing a psychiatrist, or having any management at all for his schizophrenia. He had also been in minor trouble with the law prior to the shooting, but nothing that was considered major. Were there signs of behavioral disturbances before the military? Possibly. Clark and friends report Gail being obsessed with Pantera, complaints of being watched, identity and lyric theft during his adolescence, and early adulthood, which Clark attributed to drug use. Clark told Gail that he was mistaken, and subsequently, he stopped mentioning it to her. Were there any behaviors that Gail exhibited prior to the shootings that suggested he was unstable? Perhaps. His mother mentioned in interviews after finding a notebook that suggested that he was not able to see his own thoughts. And he likely felt this way through his adolescence. Two former friends of Gale's also noted strange behavior, including paranoia and interacting with an imaginary dog in 2003. In April 2004, Gale attended a damage plans show in in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he was unarmed and unable to reach the band, but caused damage uh, to equipment. No charges were filed because the band did not want to return to Cincinnati for court hearings. No repercussions for Nathan Gale at that time. Nothing happening to help him as he was most likely becoming more isolated and delusional. Which brings us to the evening of December 8, 2004. Gale was outside of El Rosa Villa nightclub, refusing to see any opening acts and instead paced outside waiting for damage plan to go on stage. It was only then that Gale entered the club through a side door. This was a small nightclub, so no huge amount of security or metal detectors which I'm not sure if that was the norm back then anyway. Gail then rushed the stage and shot Daryl at point-blank range with a 9mm Beretta 92FS, the same kind of gun that is standard issue in the military. He then turned the gun on Nathan Bray, Aaron Hawke, and Jeff Thompson. Chris Paluska and John Brooks were also wounded. Gail then took Brooks hostage, holding him in a headlock, while Columbus officer James Nigemeyer arrived He was patrolling and first to respond to the scene. And when Brooks moved slightly, the officer shot Gail in the face with a 12-gauge police-issued shotgun, officially ending the horrendous rampage. There's a lot to dissect here. There are a lot of people whose lives are forever changed by the events that occurred that night. Nathan Bray, a 23-year-old man from Columbus who was married with a two-year-old son, died attempting to resuscitate Dimebag and Thompson before ultimately being killed by Gail. He died trying to save two strangers. Jeff Thompson, 40, was Damage Plan's head of security and was shot while attempting to bring Gale to the ground. Aaron Hawk, 29, was employed by El Rosa Villa as security. And there are differing reports as to what happened, whether he was shot while attempting to help Thompson or going after Gale himself. The latter seems to be more consistent from witnesses that night that Hawk was advancing on Gale as he reloaded But the outcome was the same, a senseless tragedy. I think it's important to break down that while we arguably lost one of the music's greatest guitarists of all time that night, other families and loved ones were deeply affected that night as well. Losing Daryl Dimebag Abbott was a tremendous and preventable loss, but so was the loss of Jeff Thompson, Nathan Bray, and Aaron Hawke. Their families lost someone they loved unexpectedly and tragically. Their lives matter too. But what happens to the people experiencing grief and trauma? Well, I'm so glad you asked. James Nigemeyer eventually left his career as a police officer due to severe post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD, preventing him from serving on active duty. Killing someone in the line of duty is something I cannot imagine, even when it is the right thing to do. In 2005, he tested in Franklin, testified in Franklin County and was not indicted by the grand jury. So what could have been a provoking factor? The thought was that Gale blamed Dimebag for breaking up Pantera as several magazines showcased two sides, Anselmo being at fault and Dimebag being at fault. Was this the final tipping point after years of dealing with the paranoia of thinking that Pantera had stolen his lyrics? The honest answer is we will never really know. I'd like to talk about grief, PTSD, and schizophrenia briefly as we wrap up today. I think it's important to shed light on these conditions because they are certainly applicable in this story and to millions of people across the world. Grief is often triggered by the loss of a loved one. Bereavement is considered the time of sadness after the loss has occurred. Mourning is how we publicly show our grief. Grief affects everyone differently, and sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes others expect a certain reaction out of you, but that is not how grief works. You may be completely numb, or you could be planning the entire funeral, making shadow boxes, not sleeping, and making sure everything goes just so, and then you crash and burn right after the funeral. It's your own journey. You may go forward a few steps and then take 10 steps back. There is no timeline. However, if grief begins to take over your life, you may need to seek more help and guess what? That's okay. Normal grief is different from major depression. A really great analogy that helped me understand my own grief was shown to me by my amazing therapist and came from a woman named Lauren Herschel. The example shows a box with a ball in it and a pain button. The ball is representing your grief. It shows in the beginning of your experience with grief that that ball is huge and constantly hitting the pain button. And over time, For most people, the ball gets smaller, but the pain button stays the same because it will always hurt the same. That pain doesn't go away, but how you experience and how you deal with it hopefully does. Caveat to that is when the ball does hit the pain button, it's sort of like getting punched in the gut. You're reminded why you grieve in the first place. It helped me relate to the suffocation I felt, and I even use it now to describe grief to my own patients. On the brave grave, on thebraingrave.com, I will have resources available for anyone experiencing grief, are interested in learning about grief, or know anyone that may need help. PTSD is also a complex disorder which, del- which has delayed or immediate responses. It's, it's made up of a lot of symptoms. Um, sometimes people will have brief experiences with PTSD and others will experience prolonged symptoms. Some of the symptoms people have with PTSD can experience anxiety, sadness, difficulty concentrating, reliving the trauma, difficulty sleeping, anger. When these symptoms persist and begin to interfere with your everyday life, it's important to seek professional help. Such as in the case of Officer Nigemeyer, he likely needed to have a psychological evaluation before returning to work or had ongoing counseling because something like this occurring on the job would also be incredibly traumatic. Sometimes people with PTSD also experience physical symptoms like headache, fatigue, stomach issues. It's important to understand that what they are experiencing is real. And at the end of the day, the underlying issue needs to be addressed, the trauma they experienced. We will discuss PTSD further in an episode of Cerebral Connection in the future. And last, but certainly not least, is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a complex mental health disorder that affects how a person behaves, feels, and thinks. They often will appear as though they've lost touch with reality. It can be incredibly disabling if left untreated. However, there are treatments available, but it needs to be delivered consistently and most often with a team to help, you know, succeed with symptom management. Some of the symptoms of schizophrenia can begin to manifest in the late teens to early thirties, and most often males will show symptoms earlier than females. It typically takes an episode of psychosis to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Some of the symptoms that we see with psychosis is difficulty concentrating, trouble thinking, suspicious or paranoid behavior, intense ideas, strange feelings, difficulty telling reality from fantasy psychosis can also include delusions which means false beliefs and hallucinations which is seeing or hearing things that others do not see or hear they can also have incoherent or nonsensical speech and an example of that is i'd like to hop on the dilly dally and see the dog so it's kind of an example of speech that doesn't really make sense Um, And none of it really goes together. There are several reasons for a person to experience psychosis and not just schizophrenia. We'll talk more about schizophrenia in more detail when I cover it in Cerebral Connection. Some of these symptoms of psychosis and timelines seem consistent with what Nathan Gale uh, was reported to have. So what went wrong? Was he set up with support when he was discharged from the military? What was the plan for his safe return to civilian life? How much did his family know about his diagnosis? Did they understand that while medication is important, cognitive behavior therapy, psychosocial support, and family education is imperative to success long-term? This is part of what is so important about breaking the stigma with mental health. It's time to speak up. If something seems wrong, then it probably is, and it's time to do something. The Franklin County coroner confirmed that Nathan Gale had no drugs in his system at the time of his death meaning prescription or illicit, indicating he wasn't taking medications for schizophrenia. Yes, Nathan Gale murdered four people that night and changed the lives of many people. But somewhere in a very broken system, Gale was failed too. Is it possible we could have saved Nathan Gale too? I guess that's something to ponder. So until next week, remember, the time to be silent is gone. Get loud, my friends. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is editing Crystal at the end. And I realized that I really wanted to put this in, um, at the very end. Um, and it's, uh, a couple of resources that I will have on the website as well. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, the mental health resources websites, um, provide, uh, really good, uh, resources that are community based, um, so may help you location wise, at least in the United States, um, for places that you can get help. And so if you have a family member that you're you know, really concerned about um, or you really have questions, um, they may be able to help you. Um, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to take your, your, make your loved one take their medicine, but if there's ways that you can communicate with them and maybe get through to them, um, or if you're concerned that maybe your loved one has an undiagnosed mental health or mental illness, um, you know, maybe these websites might be a good resource to you. Um, so there are several, uh, websites on here that you should be able to look at. Um, also if it is a crisis, um, there are uh, crisis text lines. Um, you can text HOME to 741-741. There's also the National Suicide Prevention Line. And there's also a telephone that's 1-800-273-8255. Stay safe.